a couple things are happening. One, it seems like the invitation to Jesus is open to all, no matter their starting point. Yeah. And then second, in the New Testament, there are political parties in the Jewish community, and they are aligning in certain ways in relationship to the Roman Empire. And I don't find Jesus fitting into anyone specifically, yeah. right? He There's a little bit of something from each one of them that, that he might do every once in a while, and then there's a criticism. Hello and welcome to Upwards. I'm Dan Johnson. Today, I welcome Ron Sanders to the podcast. He's an author, assistant professor for Christian ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary, and on staff with crew at Stanford University. He's been at Opera House the last few days, giving lectures on politics in the church, and also leading workshops for campus ministry staff. In this episode, I'm talking with him about how Christians should think about politics and how to develop a theological framework around politics. Please enjoy my conversation with Ron Sanders. So, Ron, um, you've done a lot of work around Christian ethics and specifically in religion and public policy. want to just talk a little bit about your background. You did a PhD in this area. How, how did you jump into this field? Like, why was this such a point of interest for you? Where did you get this interest? How does this even post the PhD? played out in your day-to-day work. Sure, yeah. It's been great to be with you all the past uh, couple of days. Uh, this is my first time visiting Madison, and you all have been so great. And it's been fun to interact with your community and the different uh, campus communities, Christian communities on campus. So, yeah, it's been really great. Uh, to answer your question, um, I got into this conversation really as I was working on my master's uh, degree at uh, Biola University Talbot School of Theology, and I was studying philosophy of, philosophy of religion and ethics. I kind of drifted in the ethics direction, mm. and I did an independent reading on Reinhold Niebuhr. Mm. Um, and so that got me thinking about uh, politics and how Christian faith relates to politics. Then I went up to Stanford University to work with Crew there, and after about five or six years, I started a PhD program. And part of my focus of the PhD program was to do some more research. Mm-hmm. And I originally intended to maybe write my dissertation on Niebuhr and his approach to politics and how like maybe he and his brother were a little bit different and some of those things. But I kind of, I got a little more interested in um what we were doing as an evangelical community mm-hmm. in relationship to politics, mm-hmm. some of it wasn't super satisfying to me, some of the ways that we were talking about it. And then, but I thought that is an important, mm-hmm. such an important topic where, you know, we live in a democracy. The democracy has invited us into the conversation about what's important, what are the goods in society, how do we distribute those goods justly to our citizens and our guests. And so, I got really interested in that conversation. And then, um, like I said last night when we were talking about this, I also thought that there was, when I was talking about my faith, just my personal faith with people in my work with crew and just in my normal life, that what I noticed was was that people were really interested in Jesus or at least neutral about Mm -hmm. Jesus. And then when it came to the Christian tradition or Christian religion, Mm -hmm. 
they were had a negative kind of reaction to it. And I'm like, where did this negative reaction come from? And so that's kind of one of my hypotheses, maybe how we as evangelicals have talked about or approached politics, maybe that has contributed mm. to that gap in perception between Jesus and, and Christianity as a religious tradition. Yeah. Religious traditions aren't really in vogue right now. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the t- statistics say that people are leaving established relig- religions, even though they might not be leaving their spiritual relationship yeah. to those religions, but they just don't want to be a part of yeah. some of those practices or yeah. be identified with some of that stuff. And so, yeah. so yeah, that's what kind of motivated my research. And yeah. I, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. I th- I think it's important. Mm. And so, mm-hmm. um, and I've kind of always liked politics since I was a yeah. kid. So I thought it was, it's a nice intersection of yeah. my interests, yeah. I guess. That's yeah. great. Yeah. You talked a little bit last night about Old Testament views around politics and New Testament, kind of the duality of those two things. I thought that was really interesting. I'm wondering if you could unpack that a little bit and take us through kind of maybe those two different mindsets around those two different canons um, as we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yeah. So, yeah, one of the things that I I try to emphasize when I'm speaking is that in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, Israel is formed as a nation to be a light unto the nations, right? So yep. the surrounding nations were supposed to look at Israel and see something about God. And Israel is supposed to be a witness uh, to God in that way and how they lived, how they lived according to the laws that God had given to them, how they lived according to the wisdom literature. So that was a really important part of God reflecting himself back into the world through his people. Mm. Because God has always used a community or had the notion of using a community to to spread who spread the news about who he is and and what life under God's rule might mm. look like. And so that part of it, apart from exile, when, when Israel went into exile, that's an important aspect of how uh, we as a community of people who follow God reflect him back into the world. And so when it comes to the, then to the New Testament and the gospel gets spread beyond just the Jewish community to the Gentile community as well. And you see that in the book of Acts, but you see strong hints of that in um, the gospels. And and if you look back into the Hebrew scriptures, you'll see echoes of, oh, this, you can anticipate this happening, like God's covenant with Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the nations. Mm-hmm. And so that blessing to the nations that runs all the way th- as a theme through the Hebrew scriptures comes to bear in the New Testament as the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And what happens then is there's not a clear nation state any longer that reflects the glory of God mm-hmm. or the wisdom of God and those kinds of things, but it's the church church's presence yeah. in every nation uh, as a witness to God. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that that shifts our kind of imagination on how we relate to the mm-hmm. political atmosphere. And the in, I think the interesting thing that I couldn't get into a lot last night because you can only choose yeah. so much <laughs> is that we have a history in America of a very close association between Christianity and democracy, mm-hmm. right? And when the when the Puritans came to America, one of the reasons that they came was that they thought it was fertile ground for 
their ideas of what a democracy might look like and their and some of their frustrations in England mm. right and so they um they had the kind of analogy of leaving England and coming to America like the ancient Israelites leaving Egypt mm-hmm. and coming to the promised land mm. and so they used a lot of that imagery in mm. their writings mm. when they did that and so it's very Sometimes it's really easy to uh, say something like America is a Christian nation, mm-hmm. right? And it comes from some of that imagery sure. of the Puritans. And then if you fast forward to the end of the Second World, World War and kind of the onset of the Cold War, mm-hmm. we get a reimagination of that and a lot of language like that because, you know, the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union was proclaimed atheist. Mm-hmm. It was communist, Mm -hmm. it was socialist, you know, and we were in America defining ourselves in opposition to that. So Mm. we're democratic, Mm. we're capitalist, and we're Christian. Mm. And so you get things like in God we trust, Mm -hmm. on the money, and one nation under God and Mm -hmm. the Pledge of Allegiance, that all comes in the late 50s, early 60s, Yeah, right? And so you kind of get that kind of language again, and we have to be... We have to be careful about that language yeah. because that that's not nowhere in the Bible, right? Right. right. That we're specifically a Christian yeah. nation. Yeah. But we have a lot of Christian heritage. Mm-hmm. And that's, as I said last night, we might talk about this a little bit more, but that's why one of the reasons I think democracy has worked mm. is because Christianity has some virtues that help mm. democracy carry itself forward. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, but it's one of the challenges as well is to think of yourself in that way as kind of a special nation. Yeah. Um, when we as a church have a special role inside of every nation. Yeah. 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 So I hear this term a lot around here, and I don't know if this is just a Madison, you know, Dane County campus thing, but I hear a lot of Christians talk about feeling like they're political exiles. Mm. Like they don't land anywhere. They're kind of wandering, right? I mean, some of the biblical language you were yeah. just talking about. Yeah. Um, when that kind of statement comes up, I'm just wondering about kind of a theological perspective around that is we're thinking about kind of, you know, two political parties, people not feeling like they're Christian specifically feeling like they're not landing in a specific area. Is that problematic language? Is that healthy language? I'm just wondering about kind of that language and framing through kind of a, a Christology lens. Yeah. I think that it's an interesting way to say that. I think what people are trying to describe is is a good thing. Like it's a tension that they feel not at home at within any mm-hmm. political party and their entire platform, which yeah. I think is a is generally a good thing mm. because we want to have as Christians we want to have a prophetic distance mm-hmm. a little bit from each party because mm-hmm. each party in some ways the good that they're trying to do is in some ways reflects imperfectly but mm-hmm. reflects something about the kingdom of god and then in some ways it, they don't mm-hmm. the the platforms don't mm-hmm. and so we want to have a little bit of prophetic distance to be able to say you know right that's that's something good and we want to participate in that and we want to affirm that that you're doing good and then we want to give a criticism mm. of that and mm-hmm. we want to maybe reshape or rethink that and so we shouldn't 
I don't know that we should always feel totally comfortable within inside of a party. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you can't be, yeah. uh, you know, a Republican or a Democrat. It just sure. means that we have a posture that is like, yes on these mm-hmm. and no on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're probably a Republican because you think that if you took a grand total sum yeah. of the yeses, they outweigh the noes or sure. you're a Democrat in the same for yeah. the same reasons. Right. Right. And so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's an interesting way to say it. I, I guess I haven't heard people in the Bay Area say mm-hmm. it like mm-hmm. that. But yeah, I, I think it's trying to describe the tension mm-hmm. that we should feel a little yeah. bit as Christians. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about a framework of the Christians we should be thinking about politics. You just walk through maybe a few of those ideas around a framework for us to be thinking about it kind of in our day and age. We're in 2023. What does that what does that look like? How should we be thinking about politics and our faith, the tension between those two things? Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a presidential election coming up in 2024. This usually brings this question a little more acutely mm-hmm. um, into our conversations in the church and in our faith communities. So, yeah, I think. The framework that I try to think of is I use the word prophetic in mm. in the way that prophets call people back to faithfulness mm. to God. At least in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, some of their role was to call people, especially the kings, to the faithfulness to God. And so, what I what I want to say is that the first thing is that the role of government is to do good and to punish evil and kind of to set the boundaries for what is a good life and what is not appropriate to live out. And then we vote on those things and, Mm -hmm. you know, and then the government is supposed to support those. Mm -hmm. And, and so we hold it to that. That's, I, I quoted Romans chapter 13 Mm -hmm. uh, last week. You could also quote uh, first Peter chapter two on the role of government, at least the institution of government Mm -hmm. in every nation state. And so our role is to hold the government to that because mm. that that's its God-given function. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we do that by affirming it um, when it's doing that uh, and doing it well. And then we do it by, one, challenging it when it's not doing well at mm. that. Mm-hmm. And then also, I, I didn't say a lot about this in the talk, but mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more in the QA, Q&A, but that our role is not just to challenge it, but where we see the government maybe not fulfilling its mandate, maybe because it just is an imperfect institution, mm. right? And so uh, what is it? It's attributed to Churchill, but I don't know if we can ever uh, say that it came from him. Democracy is the worst form of government, mm. except for every other kind, you know? And so it's imperfect at best. And so where the imperfect imperfections exist, that's where the church can say, you know, there's a problem here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know it. We're in our communities. We want to address it. And so we're going to s- start developing some mm. programs to help take care of this problem. And we don't, we don't need the government to take care of that. We're going to step in and, and we would hope that they would, but yep. we're going to step in yep. as a community. And um, when I've given this example in Silicon Valley and the church that I go to or when I give lectures or sermons or something like that, there's a lot of brilliant people. Mm. Some of them are brilliant at uh, public policy questions, right? Uh, Some of them have made a ton of money 
And then some of them have, uh, are just activists. And uh, let's get those folks together and say, hey, you come up with these ideas. You have the funding, let's help fund mm -hmm. them. And then you, the activists, let's go. Mm. And let's do something. Let's see what our church can do in this community uh, when we see a deficit that the government might not be covering. And I think one of the questions that, or one of the things that I think a city or even a campus ministry on campus should hope for is that the administration or the officials, the government officials look at you and they go, we don't agree with everything that you say or everything that you believe, mm -hmm. but it would be a deficit to our community if you weren't here. Mm -hmm. And so we want you to stay because of the good that you do in our community. Yeah. And that would be my, that would be my hope. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it's interesting. It brings up a story before I, came to upper house working for a different organization and 2016 election, you know, a staff person, uh, writes a letter endorsing one specific presidential candidate, prints it off on letterhead and mm. sends it out to the entire, you know, local donor base, right? Like this is the thing or a pastor, you know, getting up front of a congregation in either 2016 or 2020 getting up and saying, you know, I'm endorsing or we're endorsing this specific candidate as a church. I think as, as a Christian, that feels problematic to yeah. me. How do we think about like, those are obviously kind of like the most extreme instances. Right. But like, I, I think the tension between public policy and the pulpit yeah. is really interesting. Where do we find kind of our measure uh, either good or bad within that structure. Yeah. Um, what I, what I hope a church would do, um, is they have people who are involved in politics or people who have studied it or who have interest in it. And my hope would be that they would get a, a diverse little small group and mm -hmm. say, Hey, we're, we're going to take this election and we're going to work through the policies. You know how you get an election guide and mm -hmm. it has mm -hmm. like the pros and cons Yeah, that they would take some of those issues and just work through them and say, Hey, this is, this is our best attempt at understanding this in a Christian manner and um, looking at these, these proposals, these legislative proposals, these candidates in a way that, that we can evaluate whether they're going to fulfill their mandate, number one, and then, and what these legislative proposals, how they're going to contribute to the good and people's flourishing. And, and I, I would hope that that would be how we address it as a church to kind of equip the church to uh, make their conscience decisions, right? And then let, let the things fall. Because when I go to the election booth, mm -hmm. this is what I usually do is before I step into the election booth, uh, well, now I vote. <laughs> Everybody usually votes absentee now, but before I vote, uh, I thank God that I have the opportunity mm. to participate because a lot of people don't have these kinds of opportunities. Mm. So I have, a, I have a small say in what, what can go on. So I thank God that I have the opportunity to do that. And then when I come out of the voting booth, I confess that I've voted for imperfect candidates and imperfect legislation and that now I ask God for wisdom to address some of those deficits. Mm. And um, because I know that they're coming, yeah. right? Because any candidate is not going to reflect the kingdom of God, nor yeah. is any legislation 
And so it's going to have some consequences that we as a church need to kind of then address. Mm -hmm. So going a little bit deeper on that, um, you know, many evangelical Christians are aligning with one political party. And we've heard that, yeah. we heard that in 2016, we heard that in 2020. Why is, why is that so problematic from a kind of a Christology theological standpoint in our political kind of landscape of things? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that makes it problematic for me as a theology professor and as a minister, a campus minister, yeah. is what that communicates to, communicates to the world is that there's something attached to the person of Christ that makes him unavailable to a wide part of the audience. Mm -hmm. Whereas I, when I read the New Testament, a couple of things are happening. One, it seems like the invitation to Jesus is open to all, no matter their starting point. Yeah. And then second, in the New Testament, there are political parties mm -hmm. in the Jewish community, mm -hmm. and they are aligning in certain ways in relationship to the Roman Empire. And... I don't find Jesus fitting into mm. any one specifically, yeah. right? He, there's a little bit of something from each one of them that, that he might do every once in a while. And then there's a criticism. Mm. So yeah, I think that it's, it's problematic in that way. And then it's also problematic because what I don't hear is when people align with the political party, the criticisms in, from internally from that mm. party. Mm -hmm. uh, or from them to that part, sure. right? And some honest kind of assessment of, yeah, this might be good, and I agree with this, but this is not good in our platform. Mm -hmm. Because these days, it's all about accumulating the power. Mm -hmm. And one of, the, one of the things that I think why we don't see as much nonpartisan participation mm -hmm. is if you work with somebody on the other side of the aisle or you agree with somebody on the mm -hmm. other side of the aisle, you're giving away some of your power. Mm. And so and that's not a good thing in politics. Mm. Right? If you if you want to win the day and be the majority yeah. and those right. kinds of things. Yeah. And as Christians, I think we have to think about that mm. and our power a little bit differently. So, uh last night you had a, a few different examples of people that kind of the duality between politics and faith and whatnot. One of those Martin Luther King yeah. Jr. I wonder if you can do a little bit more of a deep dive on that. Why, why was he such a good figure for us to think about kind of the politics and Christian faith and the intersection between the two of those? Martin Luther King Jr. is a really interesting person in the sense that uh, he wasn't perfect by any means. None of us are, right? But he wasn't perfect, and especially as a public uh, figure. But what he did was hold America accountable to its promises. Mm. The all men are created equal. Mm. And he said, this isn't happening yet. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he wanted to challenge, and he's basically an example of what I tried to say. He wanted to challenge the Institute of the American government, the institution mm. of the American government to fulfill its promises and to be faithful to what it's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And, what it was doing was not a good. Mm. And so to advocate for that, he reminded them of their promise. Mm. He protested that they weren't fulfilling their promise, but he did it nonviolently mm -hmm. and he did it creatively. And when I read the New Testament, I think that that reflects at least 
faithful mm-hmm. reading of yeah. how to do this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's he's a great example. And then I use the example of Andre Trachme mm-hmm. too in Les Chambon, France. And their village, he was a pastor in the main church in the village of Les Chambon, and they rescued as many Jews during World War II as there were, were villagers. Mm. So there's a there's a film out called Weapons of the Spirit, and it's basically one of the Jewish babies that was born in that community go back going back and asking, why did you do this? Mm. Right? And one of the reasons why they talked about Andre Trockman and Edward Teese, they were the pastors together, and that they were cosmopolitan pastors in the city before, but they kind of got exiled to Le Chambon, which was a rural village. And it was because they were pacifists, right? And then when they came there, um, the Nazis had then conquered France. And and so they told people not to cooperate with the Nazis when France was beginning to. And so they had a consistent message all the way through. And one of the parishioners of their church called them a minority of two. Mm. Ever, everywhere they went, they were a minority of two, right? And they just kept this consistent message through and they, then they ended up doing good. And, and we look back on their lives and say, as a Christian ethicist, we look back on their lives and say yeah. the fruit of their decisions reflected uh, what we see in the pages of the scriptures. Mm. Yeah. in their actions. Yeah. And so that's one of the, one of the tests is the historical retrospective test mm-hmm. in Christian ethics. Sure. So we look back and say, where do, where do we see something? And with MLK Jr. and with Trockman Tease, you see something positive that reflects the scriptures. And then mm-hmm. we look and say, okay, well, what about it? Can we learn from and can we then apply and bring forward yeah. to, our, to our own day and age? Yeah. yeah. Uh, obviously, campus ministry where you care deeply about the next generation of of people coming up, we uh, do that as well here at Opera House, and really care about the institution of the university and yeah. the students that are here. You know, Pew Research says that there's going to be seven to nine million new voters in 2024 that are going to be first-time voters. They're going to the ballot box for the first time. What would you say to those folks, first-time voters going in in a very probably a, a tension-filled political climate that's going to be coming our way in 24. How should they be thinking about stepping into that moment in that time? Yeah, I think one one is most of them watched some of the contentious parts of the elections in the last the last presidential election, for sure, in some of our state elections. One thing that I've really appreciated about uh, Gen Z right now, that's, then the next gen is Gen Alpha. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have Gen Z children, so I've kind of watched them grow up a little bit. And some of their instincts are right, mm. you know, and they, uh, they're they responding to what, they, what they've seen and not liked sometimes, mm. and then sometimes what they've seen and liked. For a part of them, I want to say, I think some of your instincts are right and you should just go with them. And then part of it is like, okay, you have these instincts. Some of them are right, some of them are wrong, just like everybody. Mm. Now let's add some texture to those. Mm-hmm. Let's make them just not instincts, but do some of the work that it takes to, sure. uh, now that you're involved in the political process, do some of the work that it takes yeah. to be active and good participants in that process. You know, getting informed, especially 
about how your faith relates to these questions and mm. stuff. And mm-hmm. just don't, don't take the kind of cliche lines. And I think Gen Z is actually decent at that. Sure. And so don't take those, but just try to add some texture to some of those instincts. And some of them will change mm-hmm. as you add texture. Some of them will get stronger. That's the best that I can, yeah. I think no, that I can say yeah. is that th- there's work that needs to be done mm. and put in the work. And we, which we all need to do. Yeah. One of the things that I say to people who are Christians who come to university like Stanford or Wisconsin Mm -hmm. is I hate to say this, but you have double the work to do when you come Mm -hmm. because your role as a Christian is to take the best of the education that you're getting Mm -hmm. here at Wisconsin or at Stanford or any other university And then you have to take that and say, okay, now how does this relate to the kingdom of God? Mm. So you have to do a little extra work in that. And that's, that's what we do as Christians. Yeah. When Jesus says you're in the world, but not of it, it's, it's part of our role in our faith. Yeah. Is to be able to recognize some of those things and it takes some work. Yeah. You know, UW Madison is a very interesting kind of dynamic public funded university really we have kind of these two hills um and we have a capital on one side and bascom hill where the chancellor is on the other side of that so just a very like interesting political climate that Mm -hmm. we're continually in as we think about the current state of the university and especially around a public university like this as we're talking like so many of the legislative things that happen literally miles apart from each other uh, have huge, huge impacts into policy, financial, which is a huge part of this. How would you encourage Christians in the academy, whether that be administrators, faculty, you know, those that are kind of the lifeblood, the long-term lifeblood yeah. of the university, think about their faithful commitment to kind of that landscape? in what can feel probably like a contentious, well, I know it feels like a contentious environment yeah. a lot of the times. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I actually, it was 75 degrees yesterday. Is that right? Here? Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is a nice October day. <laughs> Very I nice. hear this is one of my, this is my first time in Madison. So um, it was beautiful. So I walked most yeah. of the, uh, between the two, yeah. uh, two places of power here yeah. in Madison. Um I walk that street. So, uh, yeah, it's for administrators and I, I'm assuming Christian administrators yeah, yeah. and stuff and Christian faculty is, you know, maintaining the university's mission uh, broadly in helping to educate the next generation, helping them to produce good citizens that participate and contribute to society. And then for, and for people of faith, helping them understand not necessarily everything to think about these specific issues, but how to think about these issues. Like somebody last night said, you didn't tell us well, anything about any policy yeah, right, or who to vote for. Right. But I think what you're trying to tell us was how to think about these things. Yeah. And I think as university officials, that's the role mm. is helping these people who are newly forming their participation in our society, especially through the political process, is how to think about these things, how to be good contributing citizens, and for people of faith, how that interacts with yeah. their faith. So I think it's it's really important. And sometimes that means taking a stand, 
mm. on certain political issues that they might mm -hmm. disagree with. Sure. And then sometimes it, it means supporting some of those political decisions mm -hmm. that they might agree with. And then again, going back to the same thing, sometimes it might mean taking some creative, making some creative alternatives mm. for the students and the people that they, the people that they work with. Mm -hmm. uh, so that some of those things can be experienced. But what I think what we're seeing is a really challenging time for universities yeah. on how to do those things mm -hmm. in a way that maybe honors some of the voices that traditionally have been not heard mm. on campus. And then some of the things that have been done in the past that we need to change for the sure. future. And that's, I think that's a real challenge yeah. for the university who prides itself on education and prides itself on free speech mm -hmm. and exploring different ideas. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's one of the tensions that the university yeah. is really facing right now, one of the challenges. Yeah. Ron, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom around faith and politics. And thank you to our audience for listening. If you wanna engage further with Ron, he has been at Upper House the last days and has given a lecture on the intersection of faith and politics. We've recorded the lecture and it's up on our YouTube channel. You can also pick up his book, After the Election, Prophetic Politics in a Post-Secular Age, anywhere you get books. Go forth, love your neighbor, and do good. <laughs>